Moses is getting ready to pass away, and he is sharing his heart with this generation that's going to enter into the promised land. Deuteronomy is really his sermons. It's, it's his thoughts on the law. God has given the law to him, and now he's sharing it with this next uh, generation. As we study the law tonight, we're going to focus on Christ in the law. We know that all of Scripture points uh, to Jesus. What's the purpose of the law? That's important for us to know. Where do we fit in with the new covenant when it comes to the law? And Paul tells us that the law is our schoolmaster, which drives us to Christ. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments tonight. And if you weren't sure that you were a sinner before tonight, you're going to know that you're a sinner by the time we, we look at these. If you think that you can earn or deserve salvation apart for what Christ has done for us, the law humbles us and brings us to Christ. But also, the law shows us the perfection of Jesus, the hero of our faith, because Jesus fulfills this perfectly. We have the Ten Commandments, but that's just the beginning of the law. There's 613 commands, and Jesus lived those perfectly. To where when he died on the cross for us, he was righteousness dying for our sins. Now in the new covenant of God's grace, we also have Christ living inside of us that equips us for holiness. So it's not that holiness goes out the window now, but we actually have the power through Jesus to be able to live out these things that are close to God's heart. Let's look in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 5. And Moses called all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. You may underline three words in this verse. The first is to hear. I want you to hear the word of God, then learn the word of God, then observe the, the word of God. It all starts with the hearing. Are we hearing God's word? Does it have our attention? Spiritual hearing is so important to the Lord. It's so important to our, our spiritual growth. You always kind of love it when you have a, a toddler that isn't really listening. Sometimes toddlers are so bold, if they don't like what you're telling them, they're, they're going to stick their fingers in their ears. It's just defiantly not listening. Sometimes we do that to God, don't we? I'm not listening. Maybe you came in tonight and you didn't have any intention of listening for whatever reason. And, and God's pleading with your heart, pleading with my heart, saying, saying, listen. Sometimes we're so busy and we're distracted and there's so many voices. We have to slow down the velocity of our life to be able to listen and to be able to hear, to be still and know he's God. But as we listen, then we learn. And then when we learn, we, we observe the, the doing of God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Horeb is another word for Mount Sinai. God gave his covenant to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. Moses is describing this event. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. Those who are here today, all of us who are alive. Saying, saying God made this covenant with us specifically. He chose to reveal himself in this way at this time to us. Not to the children of Israel when they were in bondage to Egypt, but under Moses' leadership when they're in the wilderness. Think for a moment the covenant that God's revealed to you, to me, 
the new covenant of God's grace. God's contract to us has been revealed in the blood of Jesus and how privileged we are. The Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up to the mountain, he said. Moses is saying you were afraid of the presence of God. The law makes us afraid of God's presence. We realize our inadequacies to be able to come into to his presence. But the new covenant of God's grace welcomes us into God's presence. Where Jesus has paid the price, the veil of the temple's been torn in two, we're, we're welcomed into God's presence. God's presence should cause us to be reverent, but we should also feel the welcoming that comes through the grace of God. So here's what God revealed, these, these Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God's relationship is based on his deliverance in our lives. We're not delivered from Egypt, but we're delivered from sin. You shall have no other gods before me. How did the children of Israel do on this? How did they do on idolatry? Do you remember when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai? Moses is gone. Their leadership is gone. They get Aaron to make them a golden calf, and they start to worship the golden calf giving glory to the calf that the calf had actually brought them out of bondage. Moses comes down and sees this drunken idolatry, this sexual sin that's taking place to the idol, and out of anger and frustration, he breaks these Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were broken even before they were given. You ever had a tough start? You're like, man, this is going to be a long day. Well, this is a tough start to the law. It was broken before it was given. What's the heart of God that we would have no other gods before me? Is God wants to be the one and only in our lives. This is not God saying, I want to be number one, but, but number two, you can love money. Number, number two, you can love yourself. Uh, you can also have all of the gods of, of this world. You can bow down to all of the paganism that's taking place. When God says that he alone wants to be our Lord, it's that there is no second. And marriage is the illustration of that. When you're committed to each other in marriage and you tell your spouse, you know, you are not my number one, you're my only. I hope you tell that to your spouse. If you go to your spouse, hey, you're, you're my number one, but I got a couple on the side. That's like two and three and four. I hope that's okay. No, 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 that, that's not okay. You're, you're my one and only, and that's the heart of God, is that he wants all of our worship. This flows into the next command. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. There's this tendency for us to want to make an image and worship it. It's difficult for us to worship a God we can't see. We see the evidence of him and his creation. So we'll tend to make an image for ourselves that we want to worship. And what God specifically lays out here is images of creation, images of the heavens, and images of, of the earth. Also, a lot of the idols were made in the image of, of man. And so we're challenged in 
our love for God. We're challenged in our worship. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Please note, of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So many believers, we walk in condemnation and shame under the attack of the enemy, and we read verses like this, and we think, oh man, God is going to take my sin and visit it upon my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, three to four generations, and we don't hear that this is what God is saying to those that hate him. If you hate God, yeah, your sins are going to affect future generations. But what does it say to those that love God? God's going to give mercy, not pouring out judgment for thousands of generations. Because you love the Lord, God is going to be gracious to your kids, gracious to your grandkids, gracious to your great-grandkids. A testimony and a legacy of of mercy, not one of of judgment. Isn't that encouraging? Man, I'm not perfect by any means, but I don't hate the Lord. I, I I love the Lord. And so there's this promise of God giving mercy to future generations. In verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The the classic way of taking God's name in vain is is to use his name as a curse word, where we're saying the name of God, we're saying the name of Jesus, but we're really not talking about God. We're not talking to the Lord. We're simply using his name as as a curse word. And this is offensive when unbelievers do this, but remember, they don't know Jesus. So this is a command that's given to God's people. We do know the Lord, and so so God's name should be separate for us. We we shouldn't use his name the way we would use a a, a cuss word. His, His name is to be revered. And whenever we talk about the name of God, it's his character and nature. So he's the Lord, but that refers to his character and nature. He, he's Jesus. That refers to his character and nature. He's, a, he's our father, so that refers to his character and his nature. But this isn't the only way to take God's name in vain. Sometimes when we are believing in who God is, but yet we're not fully trusting, we're really using his name in vain. Or I'm talking to the Lord, but... It doesn't mean anything to me. I'm just saying, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. I'm not using his name as a curse word, but it stopped having any effect on my heart and my life. My, my heart is not connected to my words. Many times for the children of Israel, God would say, I'm sick of your songs. Could, could you imagine if that was God's message to us tonight? Stop singing. I'm sick of your songs. I'm sick of your worship services. I'm sick of your your gatherings. And the reason for that, for the children of Israel, is their worship was not impacting their life outside of the temple. So they would come in and give God lip service and then go out and, and live like they never knew the Lord. And God's saying, hey, you're using my name in vain. And that 
may be even more personal to the Lord than using his name as, as a curse word. So as we go through this already, we see our need for Jesus, don't we? How many times in our lives are we falling to idolatry? Are we worshiping a, an image? Are we getting to a place where we're using God's name in vain? We need a Savior, and thankfully we, we have a Savior who's won our hearts by his grace to where then we get to respond to the grace of God and say, I don't want any other idols. I don't want to bow down to another image. I don't want to, to use the Lord's name in vain. Another aspect in our relationship with God is observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, and therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. There's a lot of confusion about the Sabbath because there will be believers that will come into your life and they will tell you, hey, if you really love the Lord, then you are going to strictly observe the Sabbath, the seventh day. When the sun goes down on Friday to when it goes down on Saturday, you can't work and it, oh, you walked your dog. You, you broke the Sabbath day, right? And put this heavy burden. And we do see from the New Testament that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The rest that the Sabbath provided was a shadow that was fulfilled in Christ. But then there's others that swing to this other direction and say, because I'm free in Christ, I don't need to rest. I can just work seven days a week. I can go 24-7. And I think most of us probably swing too far to overworking instead of resting. God did not intend us to work seven days a week. And the primary purpose of the rest is for worship. This has everything to do with our worship unto God. Is, is I'm going to take a day to stop my customary work to focus on the Lord. To spend time with Him. To, to spend time with the people that he has provided in my life. Rest is a practical way of showing our faith in the Lord. God, I believe that you can provide for my needs. If I work six days a week and rest one day a week, I trust you can do more with six than if I'm running around for seven days a week. So I'd encourage you, just like you wouldn't go into idolatry, is don't go into overworking. And get together with your spouse if you're married and say, when are we going to rest? And allow work to come from a place of rest. God rested on the seventh day. Do you think he rested because he was so tired? Oh man, that was, creation thing really wore me out. Six days of hard work, I, I need to rest. No, no, not at all. It was enjoyment. And if God rested, how much more so for us? Jesus is the fulfillment of this perfectly, right? He fulfilled the law perfectly, so he rested on the Sabbath. He only had 33 years here on the earth. 
And a lot of that, one-seventh of the time, was spent resting. A lot of Americans would go, Messiah, that wasn't a good use of your time. You wasted one-seventh of your time. No, he, he rested. You have freedom in the Lord to, to be able to rest and to be able to enjoy. Also, the rest was to extend to the servants, to the slaves, because God wanted the nation of Israel to remember that they were slaves. Remembering what God has brought us out of will affect how we treat people. Now the commandments shift to how we treat others. So first loving God and then loving our neighbor. Honor your father and mother as the Lord God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Paul points out that this is the first command with promise. If you're studying the commands, it's the, it's the first one that comes with, with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, it is going to go well with you. God knows our tendency is to not want to honor our parents. This command is not time-stamped. With Once you're 18, you don't have to honor your parents anymore. What is time-stamped is children obey your parents, Right? Once you're out of your parents' home, you, you don't obey your parents in that same way. But honoring them is timeless. To choose to, to honor your father and, and your mother in doing so out of your love for God. And this is so important, is the order of these commands. If we're not loving God first, we're going to have nothing to be able to love our neighbor. If we're trying to honor our parents and we don't have a vibrant relationship with the Lord, we have no source to be able to give to our parents. Does that make sense? So love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then love your neighbor as yourself. I know what some of you are thinking. I'm reading your thoughts right now. You don't know my mom. You don't know my dad. They are not honorable. Is that what this says? If your father or mother is honorable, then you honor them. There's times that you honor the position even when it's difficult to honor the person. So you're not justifying all of their actions. You're not in this place where you're doing that, but you're saying even they're, though they're not honorable, they're still my father. They're still my mother, and God is calling me to, to honor them. So I'm choosing to do this because of my love for the Lord. And see what the Lord does. Verse 17, you shall not murder. Uh, this includes suicide. If you commit suicide, you've killed yourself. You, you've murdered yourself. So many people that I know that have committed suicide, they would never kill someone else, but they would kill themselves. If that's in your mind somewhere, Realize you're committing murder. Realize that that is not your life to take. You, you don't own your life. God created you. He bought you back with, with his blood. Your, your life belongs to the Lord. We don't get to decide how long we live. That, that's up to the Lord. Abortion is, is murder. And that's difficult. I know for some you've participated in an abortion and there's forgiveness in the Lord. God forgives you. You take that to the Lord and the, the blood of Jesus covers that. We, we all have sin as we go through the Ten Commandments. And that's a deep wound and a deep hurt for a lot of women and men who 
encouraged women to have abortions. Homicide, take, taking somebody else's life is murder. This shows the, the value of life. Jesus made this a lot more convicting on the Sermon on the Mount because he got to our hearts and says, if you're angry with your heart with someone and you call them rock a fool, right? Ever been in traffic? You're like, you fool, you idiot, right? What have we done? In our hearts, we've murdered them. We, we can't be judgmental of a murderer. We, we need to say murder is wrong, but we need to be humble and realize we all have murder in our hearts. If you don't think you have murder in your heart, I could probably prove you wrong tonight. If I wanted to be a provoker, I could probably find a way to make you mad enough where I'm like, ha ah, ha you do have murder in your heart. I, I wouldn't do that because I'm a pastor, right? <laughs> all you'd have to do is probably get some cold water with ice and come up to somebody unknowingly and just throw it right into their face and you're going to see the murder in their heart. Like, it is there. We are murderers. We should not be so shocked that murder happens. What we should be shocked is that we don't commit murder because it's there. It's in our hearts. And that's convicting. And it's serious and it shows us, man, I need Christ to die for my sins. I need him to change my heart, my heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. You shall not commit adultery, sexual sin, having sex with, with someone who's not your spouse. The book of Proverbs goes into great length of the damage of adultery. You shall not steal, taking something that doesn't belong to us. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is murdering someone's reputation. It's the right information with the wrong implication. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house or his green grass, his field, his male servant or his Toyota Tacoma, his female servant, his ox or his mountain bike, his donkey or anything that's your neighbor's. Scripture tells us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes it's easier to weep with those who weep. Man, my heart goes out to you. You've had this huge loss in your life. How do you do when your neighbor gets blessed? Like blessed out of their socks. Like, man, why don't we get to go on that kind of vacation? Right? Why can't we afford to, to do this? And, well, we work hard and we haven't got this promotion and, and we start to covet what God hasn't provided for us. Well, Lord, you've chosen to bless them. That's theirs. That, that doesn't belong to me. So I'm not going to covet something that the Lord hasn't provided. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to them. When does the hand of God write? And how was God's penmanship? Well, God's handwriting is here. God wrote on these tablets of stone. Jesus summed up these commands with, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all summed up in loving God 
and loving your, your neighbor as, as yourself. But there's another time that God writes, and it's actually when a woman was caught in adultery and brought to Jesus. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? After he got down on the ground and he wrote. We don't know what he wrote, but we know the result of what he wrote, that the accusers from the oldest to the youngest left. So he was probably writing, indicting things to each of those that were accusing this woman, and they realized, I'm not worthy to throw a stone at this woman. I'm not worthy to execute her. So God writes the standard, the truth, the law, but God also writes grace. Jesus came in the fullness of of grace and truth, and he paid the price for our sins. And if the blood of Jesus doesn't win our hearts, I don't know what will. If we're not moved to desire to live a righteous life, to love God and love our neighbor through the grace of God, then I don't know what's going to change us and what's going to motivate us. But I'm so thankful that we do have the grace of God, that the law does drive us to Christ and show us the perfection of Christ. There's one who never had murder in his heart. There's one who never had adultery in his heart, and it was Jesus. There's one that never had idolatry in his heart, and it was Jesus. It's one who never used his father's name in vain, and it was Jesus. And he's the sacrifice for our sins. In verse 23, So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Surely the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we've heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We've seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more. Then we shall die. God's voice was so powerful. They're like, we can't take any more or will die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do it. Moses, you're our representative. This is too intense for us. So you go and listen and come and tell us what the Lord has said. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they've spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commands, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. So God's saying, oh, it'd be great if they stayed in this moment of reverence, this moment of, of fear of the Lord. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, speaking of Moses, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commands, the statutes, the judgments, which you shall teach them, and they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord God commanded you, that you may live, that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. The old covenant was simple. 
If you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. You do, 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 and you're blessed. You don't do, and you're cursed. The children of Israel lived under this old covenant, and they failed miserably. They didn't fulfill the commands that God had given them to do. So ultimately, they were taken out of the land, and God graciously restored them. And God purposefully does this to prepare us for Jesus. Because if it wasn't for the Old Testament, if it wasn't for Israel's experience, what would we say to God? Why would you have to give me your son? Why don't you just give me some rules? Why don't you just give me some commands? I can fulfill it myself. But having God's law, we know that we fall short and we need a savior. That it's more than a system of rules that that could save us. So God begins and he lays out these, these commands. And in these commands, through Christ's sacrifice, through him living us, he he empowers us to live righteously, not to earn or deserve his favor, but because we've received his favor. Does does that make sense? Am Am I making sense? So how does the law fit into our relationship with Christ? Well, it drives us to Christ for salvation, and then it also drives us to Jesus to be able to live out a righteous life. I can't even begin to live these things apart from Jesus. So it all boils down to Jesus. Let's make it simple. It all boils down to to him. In verse one, now this is the command, and these are the statutes and the judgments which the Lord God commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you, and your son and your grandson and all the days of your life that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. We come to the Shema. The Hebrews call this section of scripture the Shema. They pray it and recite it regularly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is foundational. God is one. God is not plural. We serve one God. Right here we have the mystery of the Trinity because it says the Lord our God, Elohim, is the plural name for God, but yet then the Lord is one. So we have one God that has three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity, we have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, but it's one God. They're not separate. It's not Father God, Son God, Holy Spirit God. It's one God with three distinct uh, persons. If you begin to separate God into three deities, you, you come with an unbiblical understanding. He's one God. And there's some good illustrations on the Trinity, but ultimately they fall short. I think one of the best ones that makes sense is looking in the mirror where we're made in God's image. You have a body, you have a soul, you have a spirit, but you're one person. You do know that, right? If you think you're two or three people, we should probably talk after service, okay? You're, you're one person. And so we're made in God's image. I mean, there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one God. I can't wait to get to heaven and really see how the Trinity works and experience how that all works out. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all of your strength. Is this command for us? Yes. But the motivation is different. For the children of Israel, it's love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength if you want to be blessed by God. You have to love the Lord in order to be blessed by God. For us, it's love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength because you are blessed by God, because you do have the favor of God. That's already been given to you. So out of grace, you get to respond and choose to love the Lord. But hear me clearly, this is what God is calling us to. This is our aim. This, this is the very apex of what our life could be, is what God intended it to be. Why am I here? To love the Lord. Why are you here? To love the Lord. You're not here to necessarily be happy. You're not necessarily here to have your best life now. It's not about your comfort. It's about you and me getting our focus and attention off of ourselves and loving the Lord. That, that's why you're created. That, that's why I was, was created. And that's the heart of God. And we do enter into his blessings for our life. Life lines up the way that it should. It's difficult. I'm not saying that it's easy, but it lines up. It, we're out of alignment when we're not in this place of, of loving the Lord. Isn't it a pain to drive a car that's out of alignment? Right? It's like, man, just, just get back over here. And, and sometimes we're just, we're just going through life and we're like, man, I just feel all sideways. It's because we are. We're, we're out of alignment. We, we've stopped with the priority of loving the Lord. It starts with the heart. God, God wants our heart. God doesn't want a relationship with him that doesn't involve passion, that doesn't involve excitement, that doesn't involve us giving our heart to, to the Lord. Even salvation is an issue of, of the heart, to, to believe in the heart and confess with the mouth that, that Jesus is the Lord. We, we want to love him from our heart. But he also wants us to, to love him from our mind, to understand what we believe and why we believe it to take our thoughts captive, to, to love him with all of our strength. Sometimes we don't feel like loving the Lord, and it's a choice of discipline. God, I'm choosing to, to love you with my strength, even though my emotions are telling me otherwise. And this is God's command to us. This is how we respond to, to his grace. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. So after loving the Lord... There's a relationship that we have with God's word where his word is in our hearts. And this is where the transformation happens. And it takes time, but God's word's living and active and powerful as we put God's word into our minds and eventually into our hearts, then the word of God is going to bear fruit. Open up your heart to God's word. Plant it deep inside of you. Spend time in it memorize it, underline it, pray through it, and it will bear fruit in, in your life. And then this overflows in the family. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall 
write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So first, we love the Lord. Then we digest the word. Then we teach our children. Hear me out on this. I, I think a lot of times in first, I'm no expert on parenting. Let's just get out that out of the way. So if you're looking for an expert on parenting, you came to the wrong church tonight. So I'm, I'm going through this with you. I'm learning with you and, and, and journeying with my, my family. But as a whole, I think a lot of times in what you hear in family inside of Christian teaching is we jump right to the marriage and we jump right to the relationship with the kids. We, we put the focus on the marriage and we put the focus on, on the kids. And at the end of that, what we're really wanting is to try to control the outcome of the kids. We're thinking, if I can do this, then I'm going to get results. And it's really results-driven more than it is a relationship with God-driven. So let's look at what God's Word says here in Deuteronomy 6. Does it start with the kids? Does it start with the marriage? No. Where does it start? It starts with the Lord. You love the Lord. You love the Lord. You love the Lord. You digest the Word. You digest the Word, and it's in your heart. Then you teach it diligently to your kids. We can't give away what we don't have. If we don't have a genuine love for the Lord, we can't teach that to our kids. Our kids know, right? They know what we're in love with. And so don't put your focus on your kids. Put your focus on the Lord. Don't put your focus on your spouse. Put, put your focus on the Lord. And out of your love for the Lord, then teach your kids. Because kids respond how kids are going to respond. And in times when they're responding well, you might go, ho, 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 I'm a pretty good teacher. I'm going to keep teaching those kids. And in times when they're not responding well, oh, man, I'm lousy at this, all my shortcomings, and I'm going to give up on this. They're not listening anyway. It's just, man, I'm throwing stuff against a brick wall. But when it's done out of love for the Lord, okay, God, you, you have commanded me to teach my kids about you. So I'm going to try to be faithful in that, and I'm going to leave the results up to you. And ultimately, kids also have a choice in all of this. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he created them with a choice, didn't he? And they made a choice, and they chose sinfully. And I grew up in a Christian family, and I developed a really hard heart towards Christ. And I don't think that that was my parents' fault. I think God was gracious to rescue me from that, but I was on a path where that's what I had chosen for myself. So they're ultimately going to choose, but we want to have no regrets of being in a place of saying, I didn't do it perfectly, but I attempted to teach them. I attempted to teach them about God. Please hear this. If you're a parent, a grandparent, it's not the primary responsibility of the church to teach your kids. We love teaching your kids God's word. We're going to continue to do that, but it's not the church's primary role. We get to come alongside and supplement, but the primary role is us as parents to teach our kids. So God's commanding us to do that. 
So how do we do it? What's God's method of being able to, to teach kids? It's to do life with them. As we look here, it says you're teaching it diligently to your children when you walk with them, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you, when you rise up. So we're in relationship with our kids. And as we're doing life with them, we're looking for teachable opportunities to point them to the Lord. It may be a beautiful sunset. So what do you do? Oh, that's a beautiful sunset. Hasn't God really, really blessed us? He's shown us how much he, he loves us tonight, right? Maybe as a family, you see something that doesn't glorify the Lord. Definitely happens. What do you do? You pause and you say, okay, this is what we all just saw. Uh, Steve was with Tom and they're trying to play it off as a good thing and that this is marriage. What does God have to say? What, what's God designed marriage to be? That's a teachable moment that's happening right, right in front of our eyes. So, okay, this is hard, this is difficult. I'm gonna enter into it. Would you forgive me? Dad just blew it. I, I yelled at you. I shouldn't have yelled at you. I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I'm asking God to forgive me. Would you forgive me? Can we pray about this together? That's teaching our kids about the grace of God and that's reality of family, isn't it? Man, I, I just sinned against God and I sinned against my kids and I acted in a way that, that didn't honor the Lord. So there is time of structured Bible study, but this is referring to, man, I'm loving the Lord. I'm in his word, his words in my heart. I'm doing life with my kids and I'm sharing with them the truth about who God is and how he wants us to, to live our lives as we're, we're going through things. And I wanna encourage you, you as parents, keep doing it out of your love for the Lord. Keep doing it out of your love for the Lord. My life is a testimony. I'm thankful that my parents didn't give up teaching me about the Lord even when I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And there was a lot of years of that. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 stands out. It says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And 1 Corinthians 15 comes at the end of Paul teaching on the resurrection. Because Christ is risen, and we're going home to be with the Lord, be steadfast, be immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord as a parent. You maybe came to the Lord later in life, and your kids are raised. You're going, oh man, I wish I would have, would have known this, and I would have known the Lord when my kids were, were growing up. It's not too late to be that godly influence. And even though they're adults to say, I'm going to love the Lord. I'm going to digest God's word. I'm going to take opportunities that I have to share with them of who God is. Here's my heart, is as we think about teaching our kids, I also think we tend to neglect sharing the gospel with our kids, and we're very quick to get to the commands. Most kids growing up in Christian homes they do understand the do's and the don'ts. They, they do get, okay, I'm supposed to be nice to my sibling. I'm supposed to 
honor mom and dad. And those are really important things that we need to teach our kids, but they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear that God loves them, that Jesus died for their sins, that he rose again, the importance of having a personal relationship uh, with Jesus, and that out of that relationship, then we respond with trying to love uh, one another. And it's easy as a parent, and I, and I think I've probably done this too much, where, where I'm focused on the behavior and not enough focused on the belief. I, I'm not really doing a good job of, of sharing the gospel with them. I'm sharing, okay, this is the way that God would want you to behave, and they're, they're not hearing the goodness of God that then changes our behavior. We can all hear this tonight and jump into the pool of condemnation, can't we? and go, man, uh, I went to church tonight and I got spanked, right? Got spanked. Or we can take this and we can go, okay, Lord, I realize that you've died for me, that you rose again, and my sin and shortcoming as a parent, and instead of walking in condemnation, I'm gonna respond out of your grace and try to love you, gotta get my focus on my relationship with the Lord, that's where I've got to be. Lord, I love you. I'm going to digest the, the word, and I'm going to share it with my kids when I have opportunity, and I'm going to be diligent to do that. And then, Lord, would you be gracious to them? They're going to make choices. They're, they're going to decide. But I want to honor the Lord in the midst of this. So let's close. Let's pray. I, I want to do something a little bit uh, different tonight. Uh, if you're a parent tonight, we, we want to pray for you and pray with you. Parents online, parents in the sanctuary. Uh, the enemy loves beating up on parents, loves beating up on, on families. So if you're a mom, if you're a dad, I want you to raise your hand tonight. And we're going to pray for moms and dads. And just ask that the Lord would, would minister and encourage and pour out his spirit and give vision. So just leave your hands up. Father, as dads and as moms, we cry out to you. And what a gift our kids are from you. You tell us that they're a heritage, that they're a reserved blessing from you. And you see our sin, you see our shortcomings and our failures, and we come to the cross tonight. We thank you, Jesus, for, for dying for us as parents. And we want to be overwhelmed with your goodness and help us to love you, to make that our top priority, even over loving our spouse, loving our kids, that we would love you because of your grace and your goodness. Where we've walked away, we return to you, would you strengthen our relationship with you? And God, would your word, to each of us as parents, would your word be powerful in our lives? Would we digest it? Would we memorize it? Would it go deep into our hearts? Where our hearts have gotten hard, Lord, would you soften our hearts and would you give us those teachable moments through the power of the Holy Spirit to share who you are with our kids, to share your goodness, to share the gospel, to share how you want us to, to live our lives. And I'm asking by grace through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would change us and that you would equip us as parents and that conversations of you would just begin to flow in our homes and in our relationship with kids. 
And we do pray for, for each child. And we ask that you would get a hold of them by your grace. I pray for those adult kids that have wandered away, that have grown up in the church, Lord, that they would come back. That the truth of who you are that's been invested in them, that they would realize it's better to be in your house. Lord, we, we pray for those that have adult kids that are doing well, that those kids would continue to walk strong with you. We pray for our teens, Lord, how, how they need you. And would you call them by name? Would they know your works? Would they know your character? Would they have their own God story in their life? We pray for the teens in youth ministry, junior high and high school tonight. Holy Spirit, would you bless them? Give them visions of you. Speak to them through your word. We pray for those that have elementary age kids. Or would you bless those relationships, those formative years? Would truth be implanted? So many times kids make decisions for Christ in those elementary years, and we pray that that would take place. Lord, for toddlers, pray specifically for parents that are raising toddlers right now. Just bless them. Give them strength. They're, they're in the battle, Lord. For moms that are pregnant, would you, would you bless those pregnancies? Would the babies be healthy? God, would you raise up a generation that would know you, that would love you, that would follow hard after you? And as we come tonight to the communion table, may this not be just a ritual tradition, but Jesus, we remember you. We thank you that you are the fulfillment of the law. You died for our sins, that you, you rose again. You paid the price that we never could. In Jesus' name, amen.